Well, good morning. It's a it's a joy to it's a joy to teach the the word of God. It's an honor. Uh, let's start with a a story. Uh, a few years ago, I got an opportunity to share about the Christian faith at a non-Christian private school. Really neat opportunity. Afterwards, there was a, a question and answer time, and I was warned in advance that there might be an antagonistic student during that question and answer time who, on people who have gone before me, have really asked aggressive questions. So, so when it time, came time for questions, and they prepped me with some of the wild questions he was asking, but thankfully he wasn't terrible, he wasn't antagonistic, he didn't ask some terrible questions, but he did ask me one question that has stuck with me. And it was one question with two examples. Uh, he wondered about the, the, the Christian crusades in the, Middle East, in the Middle East, Middle Ages, and also the stories of serial killers and mass shooters who justify their actions, saying that God told them to do it, or they did it for God. And the answer, I mean, we could hear that question and go like, oh, that's bogus. But, you know, coming from a, a perspective of a student or someone who has not known God and just that's their impression of God, they can have questions about that. What kind of God wants his people to do this stuff? But the answer the Lord gave me in the moment was just because someone says that something is from or is for God does not mean it's something that God wants. In fact, those who do terrible things for God probably don't know him at all or have been majorly deceived or self-deceived. And though I'm sure that none of us would go to that extreme, there is a very real truth that we all have the ability to distort God in our worship of him. And whether that's just to make him easier to manage or to justify an action or a belief, Right? We've, we've all heard, you know, God told me you were the one I was supposed to marry. Run. Uh, <laughs> or God told me to break up with you. It's his will. We're just meant to be apart. Maybe that was his will from the start. I don't know. Or, or even deeper, God doesn't actually mean that. Or God, wants to, God just wants me to be happy. Or God cares about this. Or God cares about this. And when this happens... Sometimes God ends up looking just a little too much like me, right? And knowing God and having a relationship with God should move us to be more like him, not make him more like us. The last time I taught, and I'm sure you guys remember, but this is kind of what I spoke to. Knowing God should move us to align with his will and not fit his will into ours. And if we don't, we may not take, and I hope we don't take such drastic action as murder or violence but we may end up worshiping something that isn't quite God at all. And this is dangerous because everything we do in our lives finds its source in what we know and believe about God and how that belief then affects us. And it's probably so much more than, than we can even realize. So there is a lot at stake for getting God right. And I don't want us all approaching this morning now thinking, oh no, and being debilitated because I'm never getting God right. I'm always going to be wrong. What am I doing? It's like I can't even seek the Lord now. And that's not the intent. I mean, in reality, we're never going to get God 100% right this side of eternity. But we should take this seriously. We should be moved to seek God for who he is. 
And there should, I believe, be a small part of fear within us of getting God wrong. Maybe that's part of what the fear of the Lord is, the fear of getting him wrong. Whether that's through negligence or just mistaken. So what do we do about that? Just like any other relationship, if you want to know someone, you get to know them. You seek them. You have relationship. I can't know about your likes and dislikes unless I get to know you as a person. Right? We, we, we read what God has written about himself. We seek him in prayer in times of quiet and meditation. We seek him in relationship. And then we allow those things that he has spoken of himself to guide us before any of those uh, internal or external forces, whether that's my independence or my will or my preferences or familial stuff or political stuff or outside stuff, we allow God to guide us before we allow those things to take root. And this is a lifelong process. It's the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. It's sanctification. So we're going to be studying Exodus chapter 32 this morning. Uh, it's a passage where God's treasured people, Israel, got him wrong in a major way and not by accident. And I'll spoil it for you with the title here. Our, our title is How Not to Be a Golden Calf Worshipper. And as we approach this, this chapter, it's so easy to, to read these things about Israel in the, in, in the Old Testament and just kind of stand above them and point the finger and like, look how wicked they are. But, it, but as we read these things, it's so healthy for us to put ourselves in their shoes. And sometimes, you know, <laughs> how wicked am I? <laughs> how have I been a golden calf worshiper? Because in, 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 in some sense, all of us have been guilty of, of mistaken God for changing who he was to fit our needs. If you haven't, then come up and help me teach this. I need your advice. <laughs> but to resonate and allow Israel's mistake to look like our mistake. So in this chapter, we're going to find three ways in which a relationship with God should affect us. It should affect my worship. It should affect my prayer. And it should affect my reaction to sin. And all these points are on the outlines, I think, in the fellowship hall at the connection table there. But before we get into it, I'll, I'll kind of bring us along in the, in the context here. So we know what's going on in, in the story of Israel. In chapter 32 of Exodus, the people of Israel are at Mount Sinai. God, Yahweh, has delivered and redeemed them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt and has brought them to this mountain to renew his covenant with them. This covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, and now the baton is being passed and carried through with Israel. And the top of Mount Sinai is covered in God's presence which appears as a cloud of consuming fire to the people. Like picture Saddleback Mountain on fire. We've seen it before. It's an easy picture to, to have. Stay tuned till next summer. Hopefully not. Anyway. But this is where the presence of God is. And Moses alone goes into the cloud of God's presence. And what was taking place was essentially the covenant ceremony. And Moses was on this mountain, Mount Sinai, for 40 days and 40 nights. A long ceremony. But what was taking place was meant to guide Israel's life and worship and relationship with God indefinitely. And they were receiving instructions to be able to fulfill their mission to be his priesthood to the nations. His representatives of goodness and righteousness and justice so that the other nations would see God through them and turn to God. 
turn to Yahweh. And then the scene or the camera, if you will, it pans back down to the people of Israel. And we get to find out what fun ideas they're coming up with while eagerly awaiting Moses. So before we get into it, let's, let's pray. So Lord, we, we want to humbly come before you this morning to ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal those places in our hearts. Maybe those places where we've been negligent or the places where we've been purposeful in our changing of you to fit our desires or where we're comfortable. Lord, help us to allow you to move within us. Help us to approach you with, with humility. And Lord, that you would change us through your word this morning. In your name, amen. So our first point this morning is my relationship with God should affect my worship in verses 1 through 6. Now, now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who has brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what, it, what has become of him. So whether it is a thousand years ago or thousands of years ago or today, humanity is not known for its patience. I think we can all attest to this. Get yourself in some traffic. And granted, 40 days is a very long time for a person to be inside a burning cloud of God's presence. The people were unsure of what happened to him. Maybe he made God mad. Maybe he was consumed in this fire. They didn't know. But rather than waiting and trusting, they casted doubt on God and Moses. And if you read through, the, if you read through the book of Exodus, this was a regular occurrence for the people to cast doubt on God and Moses. They almost stoned Moses a couple times. They blamed Moses for a lot of their troubles. And we can learn from this, right? To be patient. Problems in our lives do not get any better when we play the, the blame game. Like God brought us out here to die. Well, Moses is not a great leader. What is he doing? And it would have made a world of difference for Israel to trust in God and his character and choices, and it does for us too. But rather than follow this amazing advice, this biblical advice, the people came up with an idea and brought it to Aaron. Essentially, they say, we're sick of waiting. Moses is gone. We need guidance. We're ready to worship Yahweh. A couple chapters ago, they just committed to this covenant. They, yes, all that you say, Lord, we will do. Like, we're ready to do the stuff. We're ready to receive the benefits of relationship with Yahweh. So let's just do what we did in Egypt. Let's make an image to worship, something that makes sense. We're going to get this whole worship system started. And have you ever been excited for a really good thing in life and then rushed to make the process come by quicker and ended up souring the whole thing? Just me. I'm wicked. All right, we'll start there. Hi, my name is Frankie, and I'm a wicked person. Hi, Frankie. Anyway, in life, God often has us waiting, even for the things that we know are his will, right? For reference, David, Joseph, so many people in the Bible have waited. Because in this waiting process, God is either preparing us for something or preparing something for us. And oftentimes, our worship deepens in the waiting and in the unknown. And God does amazing work in the waiting and the unknown. If you've walked with him faithfully through that, you know. Isaiah 40, 31 says, But those who wait on the Lord 
shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those who wait will be renewed, will fly, will run, will walk. Back to our passage, Aaron, being the the wise and strong leader that he is, that was sarcastic. He responds to the people. Verse 2. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. And they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Where do we start here? Let's start with Aaron, the leader of the people, about to be high priest, the one meant to minister to Yahweh, representing him to the people and the people to him goes along with the people's plan to make an idol, designs it himself, made the plans for it, and built an altar in front of it. The people then receive this image and declare it to be Yahweh. You know, I've heard this passage a lot in my life. I assumed that that the people were actually done waiting for God and decided to move on to another God and decided to, to, to move their worship somewhere else. But it seems to me that something a bit different is happening. They were tired of waiting for God and for Moses, so they decided to take matters into their own hands to get the worship system start started. They made an idol and they called it Yahweh. Then they said, tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. And the next day they sacrificed to this idol that Aaron made, and they feasted, they drank, and they got up to play. And this phrase, got up to play, is not like, frisbee, (laughs) hacky sack. It's a gentle way of saying drunken, naked pleasure party, right? And I I missed that part where God said that that's what he wanted. I do, however, remember him saying this is not what he wanted, and the people knew that. And it's one thing to, to rush into something because you're impatient, and it's a whole other thing to respond in complete opposition to what God actually said, and what he clearly wants because you're trying to make something happen or you're trying to avoid something or go around something. And all of this points to Israel essentially saying, Yahweh, we aren't sure what to do with you. In the long waiting and the scary consuming fire cloud on this mountain, we don't have a reference and we don't have a context for this. And that's true. They didn't have a context for it. And essentially they say, but we know and are comfortable with idol worship. This is what we did and learned in Egypt. We can imitate the worship that we've seen from the other nations. And we're going to be assumed that you're going to be happy with what we can come up with. We're going to turn you, God, into something we can handle so we can worship you more comfortably. But hey, at least you're receiving worship. And this is what we spoke to earlier. The tendency of humanity to worship God by changing him rather than allowing God to change our context of what we're comfortable with. If you don't have a context for God, let him fix that. Let him give you himself as the context. 
And was this not humanity's original sin in the garden? Genesis chapter 3, the serpent. Is that really what God said? Is that really who God is? And then Adam and Eve decided to define what was good and right and beautiful for themselves. Their son Cain did not do much better. He didn't appreciate God's rejection of his sacrifice. And instead of who, changing who he was to fit God, he rejects God and took out, took out his anger on the one that God did accept. And it's not like God was playing hard to get with, with Cain and didn't like him. God was treating him like a son. He was correcting him like a father. Genesis chapter 4, 6, and 7, God, God's talking to Cain and responding, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And this desire is for you, but you should rule over it. We're in First and Second Samuel on Sunday mornings. There's this big contrast between King Saul and King David on this very thing. First Samuel 13 and 15. In 13, Saul makes a sacrifice. He disobeys the Lord. He treats the sacrifice of the Lord as a, as a magic trick to, to defeat his enemies. First Samuel 15, he was meant to defeat the Amalekites and wipe them out and their animals. He leaves the king alive and so do the animals. And he leaves the animals. Samuel approaches him. He's like, what? I obeyed. I was going to sacrifice these to the Lord. And Samuel's response is obedience is better than sacrifice. You missed the heart of the Lord. You did what you wanted to do and you completely missed the heart of the Lord. This isn't worship. And you look at David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want to build God a temple. Nathan says, do it. God says, no. How does David respond? Okay. But, but, but then he responds, I'll do all I can to pave the way for the one that God has chosen to do it. I won't do it my way. I'm still going to do it God's way. And you see that contrast there between not only David and Saul, but even Cain. You know, you find out a lot of what is in someone's heart when they are told no or corrected. Even for things not inherently sinful, even for things that are good. But often in very aggressive and angry responses, you see that the worship that they said was for God was not actually for him, but it was for themselves. And even if they didn't mean it to be that way, well-intentioned worship of self-gratification in the name of the Lord. Saul's worship was not the worship of God, it was the worship of self. Israel's worship was not the worship of God, it was the worship of self. Doing things that appear to be for the Lord, but in reality are to appease something internally. Cain and Saul did good things on the surface. Sacrifice is good. Offering is good. Partial obedience is half good. But it's not the right thing. Full obedience. Knowing God, giving him what he desires rather than what I prefer. Then they were confronted, grew angry and bitter, and sin waited for them at the door. Both of them became murderers. David proposed a good thing to God, was told yes, and then was told no, but his response was one of humility. His agenda did not guide his life. God's agenda did. And David was not perfect. We found that out last week. But the difference shows up in correction and confrontation. 
Proverbs 15.32 says, He who disdains or ignores instruction despises his own soul, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. It's interesting how the worship of of self can can make me despise myself because I'm not sufficient. I'll end up hating myself in the process and losing myself in the process. And this sentiment that God needs to just appreciate whatever worship he has given misses the point of relationship completely. Like play that out in any other relationship. Grandma in a walker, I got you this basketball for Christmas. Maybe we can shoot hoops sometime. It's like, no, that's for you. Like, mom, I got you this video game. I hope I enjoy it. It's like, no, you missed the point. That's not relationship. Israel, in their distorted worship of Yahweh, show us a picture of what it, is look, of what it looks like to worship God on our own terms. It distorted who God was, and it damaged the relationship between God and his people. And it severely compromised their mission to the rest of the world. And it's the same is true for us. Our goal should be to be made more like Christ, not more like me. I got into the sin mess by being a lot like me. I'm going to get out of the sin mess by being more like Christ. I'll find wholeness in myself and my worship of God as I seek to approach him with that heart of humility. Let's go back to Sinai as as, uh, Yahweh reacts to Israel's worship. And for our second point, my relationship with God should affect my prayer. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I have commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Whoa. The people have ignored God. God has not ignored his people. He knows exactly what is happening and even quotes the people back to Moses. And did you notice God no longer calls his people my people. He's in the process of rejecting them and saying they're, they're Moses' people. It's like when your kids do something weird or wacky or wrong, you lean over to your spouse and say, they got it from your side of the family. But they actually did get it from Moses' side of the family. <laughs> But God is ticked, and understandably so. God says, leave me alone. I'm going to destroy them and start over with you. Now, this still keeps his promise to Abraham. He wasn't wiping out humanity, but this is making Moses a new kind of Abraham. But do we understand how huge of an offer this is for Moses? I think some of us could resonate with this. God is offering to remove all the sources of stress in Moses' life, all the people who threatened him, who constantly questioned him, who made more problems for him, and he was going to replace Moses' problems with honor. Like, I think I prayed that sometimes. (laughs) And what does Moses have to do to receive this? Nothing. Just leave God alone. He's going to do it. Like, do I take that deal? I'd I'd have a hard time turning that one down. Like, do you take that deal? I'll let you wrestle with that. (laughs) Does Moses take this deal? Let's see, verse 11. And Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, 
Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land I've spoken of, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Last time Moses was on this mountain with God, when God was in the form of the burning bush, Moses bargained with God five times to get out of leading the people from out of Egypt. And this verse we just read, this passage, begins the first of five times that Moses pleads with the Lord on behalf of the people between Exodus 32 and, and 34. Moses intercedes for, which is another word for goes before God on behalf of the people. He stands in the gap between God and the people. And he appeals to God on several levels. If you noticed, he gives the people back to God. He's like, these are your people. I don't want them. They're yours. He appeals to God's reputation among the nations, which God's reputation is very important to God. God made this whole spectacle in Egypt so that all the nations would hear about him. He would make the ancient Near East times, right? Everyone would hear about this. And when we read further in scripture, you find out that this actually came to pass. But God, God wanted his reputation not to be one of destruction, but of goodness for the people who love him. So Moses also appealed to God's goodness and he appeals to God's promises. He knows that God is a God to keep his promises and to be good and to be merciful. And, and Moses appeals to that. And what was the result? The result was that God relented he did not wipe out his people. And this is an interesting interaction where it seems like Moses is this hero set against God, and Moses is the one actually displaying these godlike attributes, trying to calm down a fierce God who was about to go wild on these people. And in one sense, Moses did a heroic action by appealing to God, but, but I want to make some points here. I have four points I want to make here. First, there's a difference between God's anger and man's anger. God was well within his rights to take out his action upon the people who were on the path to pervert their worship so badly they would end up worse than the other nations. God was angry, but God was not out of control. When I get angry, it's very easy to get out of control. I think a lot of you guys can relate to that. When God is angry, he is always under control. I think it's a good thing to remember. Second, what God proposed to Moses may have been a, as much a declaration as it was a test for Moses and his response. Would God have really destroyed the people and started over with Moses? That's what he said. <laughs> I'll take him for his word. But either way, God had the right to, and he would have still been faithful to his covenant with Abraham. And this is a really interesting turning point for Moses, where Moses gets to actually display the heart of God right in front of God. And maybe Moses didn't even realize how far he had come from the burning bush. 
So this is a really neat opportunity for Moses to, to, to show how his relationship with God has actually affected him. Third, the situation was not Moses trying to get God to do something that he didn't want to do. Moses knew and appealed to God's character, and God acted according to that character. There's plenty of times in the prophets where God actually tells the prophets to leave him alone because like, don't ask for help for them because if you do, I'm going to give it because God knows his own nature and he's forgiving. And fourth, this is one example of intercessory prayer genuine, genuinely affecting what God planned to do. Did it upset the will of God? No. Did God already know that Moses was going to intercede? Yes, he did. Does it provide for us an encouraging moment where prayer actually changed something? Yes, it does. I'm very encouraged by this. That God would listen to me and heed my prayers. And on that, like Moses, when we know God, when we pray according to his desires and his character and his will, our prayers have potency. 1 John 5.14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And the antithesis of this is James 4, 2, and 3. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You see the, the contrast there. There was this shift in Moses' character as he grew in relationship with God. Moses' heart became more aligned with God's and it, it affected his prayer life. This heart was on full display in this interaction between him and God. And as we are in relationship with God, so too should our hearts be made more like his and so too should our prayers be affected. It moved Moses from prayers of selfishness to those of intercession for others even those who clearly did not deserve it. When I spend time with God, my prayers look a lot different when I allow him to change me. Which brings us to our third point here. My relationship with God should affect my response to evil. Verse 15. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God ingrained on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Joshua, Moses' assistant, who was waiting for Moses on Mount Sinai, heard something was happening with Israel. It wasn't war, but this drunken, naked pleasure party in distorted worship of Yahweh, who they made into a golden calf. Moses saw what was happening and, like God, was ticked. And it's not like God didn't tell Moses the situation, but sometimes it's a lot easier to be gracious 
and objective when blatant sin isn't staring at you right in the face. And God help us when it does. Moses confronted this and he, he broke the stone tablets of the law and maybe this is a picture of the broken covenant. He burned the golden calf and he ground it up and he made the people drink the gold dust, which is one of my favorite punishments in all of scripture. It's like, you'll drink your idol and you like it. I hate it. Drink it. Drink it all up. And all said and done though, this gold that was used for the idol was never to be found again. Unless you're on an episode of Dirty Jobs. But we won't go there. <laughs> Moses also questioned Aaron, who was supposed to be in charge. Like, who put you up to this? This plan could not have come from you. Like, you better have a good excuse for leading them into this great sin. We continue into verse 22. So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me. I cast it in the fire and this calf came out. Easy. So here's the situation. Aaron completely fails as a leader, leads the people into sin. Moses gets angry and Aaron just gaslights Moses. Right? Calm down, calm down, Moses, and then proceeds to lie to his face. I threw it all in the fire and out popped this calf. It's a miracle. You should be rejoicing with me. Deuteronomy 9.20 actually talks about Aaron's sin in this story, in this passage, and that had Moses not interceded for him, he would have been destroyed. We continue to verse 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. A few things to talk about here. Israel's unrestrained activity was not only sinful, it was a bad example to the surrounding nations. It was, this op it was opposed to fulfilling their calling to represent God to them. It was also dangerous because they were in enemy territory acting like fools. Moses then stood and forced the people to make a choice. Stand with God and his will and what he wants, or stand with your idolatry and your will and what you want. The Levites stood with God, and unfortunately it doesn't say that any other significant group in Israel did. I sure, I sure hope they did. The rest continued to follow the crowd. And then Moses gave the word of the Lord to the Levites, Standing with God would mean having to stand against their own people, whether family, friend, or neighbor. They drew their swords and executed punishment on 3,000 of the people. And these 3,000 could have been the initial group who started this whole thing. It could have been the ones leading this vile worship. But the point is that many died because of their grave sin and their refusal to repent. And any time that killing is looked at positively in Scripture it can sound harsh, and it, it is a harsh thing. 
But let's look at this. What was the alternative? The entire nation being wiped out? These people who were killed were most likely, the way I see it, the people uh, leading the others away from God to their own demise. These people had nothing without God. And also we need to look at what was at stake here. God was protecting the promise he had made with Abraham to bless the nations. This promise had ramifications not only for Israel, but for each of us sitting here today. God will, God will do what he needs to do to fulfill his promises, to restore humanity, to defeat evil. I'm very thankful that he will. And sometimes those things can make me feel uncomfortable, but I have to remember to trust in God and his will and his character. The Levites represented those who are confronted with sin with humility, changing course rather than rejecting correction. In response to, their, to our own sin, we need to respond humbly as well. Then Moses called the people to consecrate or fill themselves. That word consecration is essentially like an open hand to God, saying, Lord, fill me with what I need, with your will, because I need your strength to, to live. To fill themselves with God and his blessings. Basically, let's turn the page. Let's go to verse 30. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold, as if God didn't already know. Verse 32, yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Moses goes before God to intercede again to try and repair the relationship between them and God to make atonement. They wouldn't be wiped out, but they still had this problem of broken covenant and broken relationship. That wasn't fixed. Moses, the same man who was hot with anger at the people's sin, then goes before God and puts himself on the line as their leader. God says no to Moses' request to blot him out, but yes to sparing the nation, though he would still punish individuals. And the Lord did this through a plague. God says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do what I need to do. God then tells Moses to go down to lead the people to the promised land. He would be sending his angel before them. And this is the end of the chapter. It's not the end of the story. It continues to, to chapters uh, 33 and 34, where God's presence, they find out, was not actually going with them. He, still give them what, he would still give them what he promised them, the land and all that, but his presence would not go with them. But through more intercession from Moses, restorative action taken by the people, God actually does decide to continue with them. But throughout this passage, we see this contrast between Moses and Aaron, not only in their leadership, but in their response to sin. Let's take a look at that. Aaron is an example of a weak person. He bends to popular opinion, even when it's obviously wrong. He does not stand up for what is right. He compromises himself to please others, then becomes the leader of what is wrong, 
only to lie and blame others to cover up what really happened to save himself, only to be saved by someone else's intervention. Aaron's relationship with God did not push him to act like God or to seek God, but to value pleasing others over pleasing God. Moses is an example of both a strong leader and a strong person. Both his heart and his actions on display many times align with the character of God. He does not react to what is easy to please the crowd, but stands for what is right. And he knows what God wants because he knows God's heart. He has been with God, and it changed who he was. His reaction to sin is anger and action, but his heart for the people remains soft. His goal was always moving towards restoration, even if it meant putting himself on the line. And now I'm not saying we should all carry swords and strike down anyone who sins. There would not be any of us left. What I am saying is that the level to which sin grieved both God and Moses, it should grieve us too. Both sin within us and sin around us. And these people weren't just anyone. They were God's people. When God's people sin, I mean, when sinners sin, sinner, I mean, sinners, sinners going to sin, right? <laughs> But God's people have the Holy Spirit, have conviction, have guidance, have knowledge. Where our eyes are open to the deception and lies of the enemy. So when we sin, I think there's a lot more at stake there. We don't have to be perfect. But we should always both love and value the person behind the sin. That should never change. Because they too are made in the image of God. And as we close here... Through this passage, we see this contrast between Israel and Aaron and Moses. Their relationship with God led them to respond differently to him, which affected, for better or worse, their worship of him, their prayer or lack thereof, and their response to sin and evil. And we got to see the fruit of both of these examples. The question is this morning, what is the fruit in my life when I allow my own ideas of God and what I am comfortable with guide me? What if my lack of seeing the Lord has led me to believe untrue things about him? Am I content with a God who looks a little too much like me? What happens when that version of my God fails? And I want to run through some, uh, some examples and the fruit that follows. Um kind of meditated on this, asking the Lord to, to give me practical examples to run through. And maybe some of these will resonate with some of us. Maybe some won't. And maybe there's some I'll bring up that, that don't apply to you. And, um, you know, you can use your holy imagination to examine your heart, to allow the Spirit to speak to you in, in this moment. But I want to run through some examples here. If my God is a God that is supposed to make me happy all the time, He can't be real if I'm still sad or troubled or struggle with depression. If my God is a God that is supposed to hand me the American dream of consistent work and a spouse and two to three beautiful children, God's faithfulness isn't real until I get what I expect from him. If my God is a God who doesn't let anything bad happen to me, he must not actually care or he must not actually be there. If my God is a God who set up his main base in America, I become an egocentric 
nationalist who forgets that God's love, concerns, and working are on a global and universal and spiritual scale. If my God is a God who isn't grieved by my or other people's sin, I minimize both the excruciating pain and magnificent beauty of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, and I cast off the need to confess my sin to him. Also, my priorities become way off as I become directionless without motivation to be made any more into the image of God. If my God is a God who continues to hold a grudge against my sin after I laid them at his feet, I cannot experience the grace he paid so much to give me. If my God is a God who wants to ruin my fun, then I've clearly underestimated the impact of slavery to sin, and I've allowed the lies of Satan to distort the freedom that comes from Christ. If my God is a God who didn't really mean it this way or meant the Bible to be more of a suggestion rather than his actual word to live by, I can live however I want and redefine what's right and wrong for myself. If my God is only concerned with me following the Sunday morning routine, I remain painfully unaware of the richness of life he has meant for me and the good works that he has prepared for me beyond the seat. If my God is a God who asks too much of me, I don't understand who and what he has given me to help. We need to know who God is. We need to seek him with a heart of humility. We need to allow his words to guide us, to pray and ask like David if there is any wicked way in us, that it may be shown and that we may be led in the way everlasting. We need to learn to love God for who he is. Nothing else will satisfy like he does. And Izzy, you can, you can come on back up and, and I'll just close us in prayer. Lord, we desperately need you. We need your Holy Spirit to, that dwells within us to show us where we're off, to show us where they're wrong. Lord, we need to know who you are as Exodus 34, 6 and 7 lays out your character as merciful and gracious, as long-suffering, as abounding in goodness and truth, forgiving and just. Lord, that we would know that you are everything we need. You are everything we need to be. Lord, to know that when we seek you, when we allow you to form us, we can truly find wholeness. Lord, help us to approach you with hearts of humility, to experience your direction, your life, your love, your grace.